My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. And welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Rowan Moyes. In Manitoba, just like in a lot of other places, most of the jails and prisons are hard to get to. There is the Winnipeg Remand Centre in Winnipeg itself, but other than that, most of the facilities in which people are incarcerated are in rural areas with few or no options for getting there unless you have a car. In 2015, a group of people decided to found a grassroots rideshare project. This enables people to get from the city to where their family member or loved one is incarcerated so they can visit and maintain relationships in the face of how incredibly isolating prison can be. The group that decided to do this is called Bar None Winnipeg. It originally formed in 2013 to engage in actions in solidarity with federal inmates who were then on strike in response to a decision to make a 30% cut in the already very low wages they get paid for working while in prison. Both the original solidarity work and the current rideshare project are informed by the group's prison abolitionist politics. Such politics understand prisons as fundamentally harmful institutions that do particular damage to black, indigenous, and racialized people, to poor and working class people, to trans and gender nonconforming people, to sex workers, and to people who exist at the various intersections of those categories. Prisons do not deal with the root causes of social problems, and in fact are often part of what is done instead of dealing with root causes. And even if you focus on the specific incident which is the basis for sending someone to prison, as an institution, it generally does little to respond directly to whatever harm might have been done, to heal people or communities, or to move situations towards a more holistic understanding of justice. Prison abolitionists imagine and work towards a world without prisons, where we have developed more humane and effective forms of justice, and not only that, have transformed society such that human dignity and justice are at its center. Part of prison abolitionist politics means working to reduce the harms caused by police and prisons in the present on the way to this longer-term vision. The rideshare is meant to be a small measure to recognize the ways that prisons harm families and communities and to mitigate those harms by keeping people more connected. People who want to visit a loved one in jail can be in touch with Bar None and then the group will work to organize a ride. The rides are free of charge to passengers and drivers volunteer their time but are reimbursed for gas. The group is very clear that they're not a social service but a grassroots initiative, so they're not able to guarantee that they'll be able to provide a ride on any particular day to any particular destination. But four years into operation, it's common to have rides going from Winnipeg to the various surrounding jails five or six days in a week. In addition to this core activity, the members of Bar None are involved in a range of other kinds of grassroots political work related to policing in prisons, sometimes under the banner of Bar None, but more often in other contexts and with other people. Today's guest, for example, has been very involved in a campaign to seek justice for Errol Green, a man who died while in custody in 2016. They have also been part of developing and delivering a workshop on alternatives to calling the police. 
Other members of Bar None have been involved in the challenge to new draconian security measures at the city's main library. In the near future, the group will be part of a campaign related to phone costs for prisoners. And they are currently working with the family of a man killed earlier this year by the police. Rowan Moyes is a member of Bar None Winnipeg. We talk about the Rideshare Project, about prison abolitionist politics more generally, and about the other ways that Bar None and its members are working towards a world without prisons. My name is Rowan Moyes. I live in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I am a member of Bar None, which is a prisoner solidarity and abolitionist group in Winnipeg on Treater One. I feel like I've been interested in grassroots work for a long time, but the things I've been involved in organizing have changed a lot over the years, and specifically focusing on abolitionist work has been kind of a long process for me that, you know, started as a <laughs> hatred of police mostly in even just growing up. And then it took me a long time to become more politically literate and find people that were organizing around these issues. Barnan started initially as a response to a federal prison workers strike in 2013, I believe. And we did some actions around that and then wasn't really active again until 2015. And it's been very consistent since then. That's when we started talking about the idea of a ride share. And that is kind of the central thing that keeps us meeting regularly, although we work on other projects as well. Tell me what you remember about the actions back in 2013 that initially brought the group together. People were protesting, I think, a wage decrease at that time, which was already abysmally low. Locally, there was a group of us that did a number of things. We did some fundraising for inmates, and we published a like fake news piece that we inserted into local newspapers. There were boxes all over downtown for like free newspapers. So we just made it look like the regular newspaper writing, but published sort of an alternative view because the narrative in the mainstream media was very critical of the strike. And we felt that the people on the inside weren't being heard or represented very fairly. And there was also some publicity type things like a banner drop and other things that we did around that time. But it was just like a response to that moment in time. And so that event brought a lot of people together to organize around it. But it wasn't until later that a lot of the same people got back together and started doing more ongoing work instead of just a one-time thing. And what inspired folks to gather back together in 2015? A few of us had just been talking about how all of the prisons in Manitoba, well, I think this is an aspect of prisons generally, but for us, specifically in Manitoba, they're really inaccessible. There's no public transit. They're pretty much all rural except for the Winnipeg Remand. And either we had people we knew who were incarcerated or some people worked with people who were often in and out of jail. And we just saw a big need 
for people to be able to go and see their loved ones in prison. And there was nothing. Even the Greyhound had been really cut back at that point. So you couldn't take a bus out there. Some of them are located not that far from the city, but without a car, you still can't get there. So yeah, we started talking about what we could do to organize rides for people as sort of like a rideshare. We really didn't want it to be like a nonprofit service providing type of thing. So just being intentional about how we portrayed this project. So before we talk more about the group and the rideshare, let's maybe back up a bit and talk more about prison abolitionist politics more generally. How would you explain them to someone who didn't know what they were? We as a group strongly believe that prisons are not the way to solve issues around crime. (laughs) I'm kind of using crime in air quotes, but just how people think about justice. They don't really help anyone. They do a lot of damage to communities and to individuals. They're not addressing the root causes of why people are being harmed. And just generally, we think that there are much better ways to address these issues and that prisons and policing are cruel and racist and classist and really just do a lot of damage overall. We are interested in working on alternatives to that generally, but also in looking at the ways that prisons and policing are harming our own communities right now and what we can do to try and limit the harm that they're causing until we find alternatives to them entirely. What are some of the concrete ways that policing in prisons harm communities, particularly in the Winnipeg context? Winnipeg specifically, the police budget continually goes up every year. This year it went up another $10 million, and we're seeing this amidst all kinds of other services being cut or even fully eliminated. It's a third of the city's entire budget that goes just to the Winnipeg Police Service. And to us, that's absolutely horrifying. It's not doing anything to address poverty or any kinds of like other institutionalized oppression. Winnipeg has a big racism problem, and we just really strongly feel like the answer to this is not more police and more imprisonment, but that's the political narrative that gets thrown around. These days, there's a lot of talk about the meth crisis. Again, I'm sort of using air quotes when I say that. There's just a lot of like fear. People are afraid. They're thinking there's like all these people who have addictions that are just sort of like running wild in the city. And it's very absurd, but you really don't think that the answer to this is putting more police out in the world or more security. But that's the response we're seeing from the mainstream. They're starting to put police in liquor stores. For example, there's very recently a massive endeavor at the Winnipeg Public Library downtown. You have to basically go through like airport security to get into the library now. And the library only talked to the Winnipeg police about how they should address security in their institution. So it's just this like wild thing where we're seeing people kind of freak out 
And instead of trying to address homelessness or addictions or income inequality, people are turning to policing. There's a lot of backlash against it as well, but lots of fear amidst media and the ways poor people and people who are facing homelessness are being portrayed. And yeah, it's pretty ugly, to be totally honest with you. One important feature of how policing plays out in a lot of cities is that its impacts are pretty starkly racialized as well. Is that the case in Winnipeg? Absolutely, yes. This statistic was from a few years ago, but about 77% of people who are in jail in Manitoba are Indigenous. So it is like a huge number of people. And that's just Indigenous people. That is not including other racialized people. But absolutely, the police are profiling and targeting BIPOC people. And BIPOC is an abbreviation of Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. Profiling and targeting BIPOC people way, way more than they are white people. We see this increasing too. I think that Indigenous women in particular, their involvement in the justice system is increasing at the fastest rate. And one of the responses that I think happens most often to abolitionist politics from people who are just starting to wrestle with the ideas is, well, okay, so what happens when someone does something violent? If you don't want to put them in prison, what should we do? How do you respond to that kind of question? I think it really, really depends on the situation. We feel like the current response is not actually responding to the harm that was caused in the first place. And what that response actually looks like, I think, depends a lot on who has been harmed and listening to those people or those communities. But our justice system presently doesn't do that. We talk a lot about it. A few of us actually, through Barnan, have started doing a workshop about alternatives to calling the police and policing. And a big part of it is thinking about your own support systems and networks in your life presently and how you strengthen those and who do you have in your life to call on either when you've been harmed or when you have harmed somebody and trying to identify where those gaps are and working to improve them. Just because we really think that a lot of harm that happens in our lives already kind of comes from places and people that we know. And I think a lot of people aren't going to the police for those sorts of situations as it is especially when it's like within families or relationships or communities, there is already a wealth of resources that people have where they're not going to the police if they're assaulted or if there's violence in their relationship. Because I think that people sort of know that the police often blow things up, like they escalate the situation rather than address it. So that already exists in people's lives. But the response to that really depends on the person. And it's hard to come up with a prescriptive response. But I think that most people don't just think, oh, yeah, the solution is jail. <laughs> like jail will fix this problem and heal the harm. And 
that is just not true. So, How did you go about turning the rideshare from an idea into something that was actually happening? Well, like <laughs> many grassroots groups, the process began with a lot of meetings <laughs> and just figuring out the logistics of how do we recruit drivers. Most of us didn't have cars. Several of us didn't even have a driver's license at that point. So we were really trying to figure out ways to find people who had access to these resources and wanted to offer rides. And we applied for some community organization grants to pay people back for gas. We don't pay people for their time, but we do pay them for their mileage. And yeah, just to think of ways to offer people sort of like guidance, I guess, in how they could get involved and what they can do while they're waiting for a person in jail and yeah, figuring out what we needed to get all of that done. Politically and practically, why was it important for the group, as you said, not to relate to the rideshare as a sort of social service? We didn't want to come across in a way that was treating people like, well, I guess that there's a big sort of social service industry, for lack of a better word, in Winnipeg. And I think that the power dynamics that happened in those situations was a thing we really wanted to avoid. Also, we wanted to be very upfront that we weren't promising people rides because it's all volunteer-based. We put a call out to like an email list, essentially, asking if someone's available for this time, but we can't guarantee to anyone ever that they will get a ride on any specific day when they come to us saying, this is when I want to visit. We needed to be very clear that it wasn't like a promise and we weren't coming at this like people who had the power to just conjure up this thing. We felt it was like much more human for people to meet each other where they're at and not like make ourselves into like an authority or someone who's fixing it because you can't undo all of that damage as like one small group of volunteers. And it has been work to communicate this to people, but it's been way more rewarding to have relationships with people in that way. And there are people who have gotten rides that have become drivers and people who have been in jail who've come and been a part of the group. So there's just like more room, I think, for movement between different roles in this project that way. And that's much better for everyone, I think, too. Now that it's been up and running for a few years, how active is the rideshare? It really depends. It depends a lot on the time of year and how available people are to drive. Even most days, there are people requesting rides. So I would say almost every day of the week, there is something. More recently, we started borrowing a big van from another group in Winnipeg on Sunday afternoons to go to one of the jails that's not too far out of the city because we recognized that that was a time when a lot of people were asking for rides. And sometimes we would have like three, maybe even four cars of people going to that same place for the same time. So right now, that's the one time slot that we can almost guarantee that we can bring people out 
assuming we have somebody with the right kind of driver's license to drive it and access to the van because it isn't ours. But other than that, there are rides probably five days a week on average going to other institutions as well. And what can you say about who uses it? It's a lot of different people. It's a lot of women and a lot of kids too. And mostly people who are going to visit folks in their immediate family. So either like partners, sometimes it's your child or a parent or a sibling. But yeah, I'm very much generalizing and we don't collect statistics or anything on who is getting rides, but mostly women, I would say. Draw out a bit more explicitly for listeners the connection that you see between the Rideshare Project and the long-term vision of prison abolitionist politics. Our true long-term dream is that there won't be prisons in Manitoba, but right now there certainly are, and we feel it's extremely important for people to be able to keep in touch with their loved ones and their communities on the outside. It's very isolating to be locked up, and it's also really hard to come back into that world once you've been incarcerated for any length of time. And we really, really think people need to stay in touch with their support systems and their loved ones and just people that bring them life and care on the outside. So it seems vital to connect people in that way in the unfortunate meantime where prisons still exist. As Bar Nun has been doing this work, are there other groups or organizations in the city that you've built up relationships with? Definitely there are. Every year we have a massive book sale fundraiser with Prison Libraries Committee, so we have a relationship with them that is very fitting. We also, like I said, we were using this van that belongs to another organization in the city, so we definitely have a relationship with them. A lot of the other projects that we work on, they might kind of fall under Bar None, but they often involve other people that aren't regular members of Bar None. So, for example, a bunch of people were doing organizing around the death of Errol Green at the Winnipeg Remand in 2016. And right now there's a campaign going on about the provincial phone system that was privatized a couple of years ago. And we've been doing organizing around that because it became exorbitantly expensive and really affected people's ability to keep in touch. But those sorts of things are also involving other community members that don't come to regular meetings or aren't a part of the rideshare So we're always into reaching out to other groups and other people and working with them on projects, regardless of whether or not they want to be involved in like long-term organizing with the group. Among those other struggles you've mentioned related to policing in prisons, is there one that you've been particularly involved in that you could talk about in a bit more detail? I was very active in the organizing that happened around Errol Green's death. Errol had been picked up on a probation breach on April 29th, 2016. And that was a Friday night and he was brought to Winnipeg Remand. 
he was epileptic, but they denied him his medication for his seizures. By Sunday, he began suffering from seizures. He had one set of them while on the phone and then was taken and put in his cell and had another seizure. And the guards responded violently and didn't take him to hospital immediately. And he died from having seizures. It was incredibly cruel and there was no reason that he shouldn't have been given his medication when he had been in remand a couple months prior he had also had seizures and they knew that he took this medication so it was totally needless senseless and very very tragic i am close with his widow and spend time with his kids and it's been like almost three years now since he passed and there were rallies that we held. There were campaigns to address some of the harmful things the union was saying and an inquest into his death that concluded in the end of January this year. If resources and people power were no object, what other kinds of projects beyond the rideshare could you imagine bar none doing? We are interested in working on campaigns like, for example, there was talk of opening a new North End police station that we strongly opposed and other people in the city also strongly opposed. Right now that's sort of been tabled, so there hasn't been a lot of work on that. We've been talking a lot about how to get information from people who are incarcerated about what they want to be worked on and just trying to like identify things that are actually tangibly achievable, even if it takes years and then working on that. We are a very small group. I think there's maybe only probably seven of us that are active right now. So we're always trying to find more ways to rope other people in. And yeah, there's only so much we can do as a little group. And in concrete terms, what does the group have coming up? What I was talking about, about the phone system is sort of coming back in. We were working with the Public Interest Law Center. For a while, we weren't really actively doing anything because... They were busy building their case from like a legal perspective and didn't really need us to do anything until they had the next steps prepared. And that's about to happen. Also, this year alone, the Winnipeg police have shot and killed two people completely unnecessarily. And one of the families in particular is very interested in addressing this in like a public way. And we're trying to figure out how to support them in that. You have been listening to my interview with Rowan Moyes of Bar Nun Winnipeg. To learn more about their work, go to barnunblog.wordpress.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Oh,